Everyone, this is your host for I Represent the 2%, Amos Wellington. This week, December 21st, the second to last Monday in 2020, I bring to you the quick review of the new Netflix special that debuted December 18th, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is an adaptation of August Wilson's play for the film by producer Denzel Washington and director George C. Wolfe. I'm also going to discuss with you the firing of Nick Cannon from the show that he created, made famous, blew up, however you want to look at it, Wild and Out. This happened back in July of 2020 and directs uh, links directly to uh, one of the star characters in the play. And so that's why I wanted to uh, connect these two items. In any case, I hope everyone is having a wonderful um, holiday season. I hope that your Thanksgiving was wonderful. I hope that your December has um, been fantastic thus far, despite all of the challenges, despite the legal challenges by the current president, despite the um, uh, hack from uh, foreign entities this weekend into our intelligence systems last week. We look forward, regardless, to celebrating with our families this winter solstice, this Hanukkah season, this Kwanzaa season, this Christmas, this New Year's. Nothing is going to stop us from celebrating and appreciating everything that has happened this year. Um, that that we have to re- re- look back on and reflect on and say that it was all good, that it was all good. And we got to thank God. We got to thank our families for sticking by us. We got to thank our friends and neighbors for pulling together. And um, yeah, so let's get to it. We have had the opportunity to experience one of the great American playwrights in August Wilson. August Wilson, uh, raised in uh, Philadelphia and where I believe nine of his 10 plays are staged in, uh, in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh. Um, This one play, this is the first one that really hit for him, which was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, was not staged in in Pittsburgh. I keep saying Philadelphia, I apologize. In Pittsburgh. It was staged in Chicago, Georgia, Mississippi, in the South. But this one day that we're watching is a recording session where Ma Rainey and her band go to a studio up north and they're going to record a few tracks, a few songs to be played. Now, the record industry has not been the most favorable to the artist, right? Showcased by artists like Prince, um, who is now an ancestor. Prince let us know that uh, although he was recording his music in his own studio on his own property at his home, that because he signed that contract early on in his career, that there was no there was not going to be any negotiation. And so Prince left his name behind and began and began to go by a symbol and was simply referred to for a period of time as the artist and would not respond to his name. (laughs) He was able to renegotiate his deal and we're going to look at that much later because uh, I won't say much later, but not uh, in depth on another on another broadcast because Prince Rogers Nelson was an absolute, absolute trailblazer. And we have to give him more time than uh, than we have this week. But I wanted to make the connection um, 
because Prince started in the in the 70s as a recording artist all the way through the early 2000s and um, 2010, 11, 12 um, before his passing, before his uh, untimely passing. In the play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Ma Rainey is a blues singer. And she is a powerful woman in her sphere of influence, in the South, in her economic system, in her self-made, so to speak, ecosystem. Ma Rainey is powerful. Ma Rainey doesn't need integration. Ma Rainey doesn't need, um, she doesn't need a college degree. Ma Rainey doesn't need the approval of the NAACP. As an artist, as a businesswoman, she doesn't need any of that. All she needs is a microphone and an amplifier so that the people can hear what's coming from her lips. The blues. Now, we have several other characters along with her. Um, Toledo, her manager, and I forget the name of the manager, but uh, the character, he's, he's a white male. Um, the gentleman that owns the studio where the recording is taking place is also white. And so they have an idea of how the recording session is going to go. And Ma has an idea of how the recording session is going to go. And what the elder statesman in the band communicates to the manager, the studio owner, and to the hotshot Levy, who wants his arrangement to be heard, is that this is Ma's show. You live and breathe to help Ma bring her message to the people, not the other way around. <laughs> You're here for her. She's not here for you. Right? Ma's the star. It's Ma and everybody else. It's not Ma Rainey and the Melody Makers. <laughs> it's just Ma Rainey's performance, all right? But Levy, 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 played by our dear brother and now ancestor Chadwick Boseman in his final filmed role. We see this brother physically thin, gaunt as it were, but powerful. His performance commands and demands your attention from the opening scene until the end. His heart is on display his passion for his craft as an actor, he disappears into Levy, who is all we see on screen. Our sister, our dear sister Viola Davis does a fantastic job converting herself into a blues singer from 1927. At the tail end of her career, at the tail end of her career, though it was, um, she fantastically transforms, physically transforms. She performs on stage. She performs in that sound studio. She gives us a memorable depiction and an understanding of a woman who is in complete control of her world in the South. It's a very different perspective than what we might normally see in a film that is depicting African Americans in a performing role. Ma's a businesswoman. She tells her manager and the sound engineer or the owner of the studio multiple times, I ain't got to be here. I can go back down south. I can get back to my tour. 
I'm not, you know, this <laughs> what they what they say consistently throughout the play is I ain't studying you. Ain't nobody studying you. Um, and one of the brilliant things that August Wilson communicates to black people first and to anyone else that chooses to listen is that first of all, our language our language, our adaptation of the English language, Ebonics, as it as it came to be known by black psychologists in the 70s, ebony and phonics combined, our language, our use of the English language is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And we as educators and we as a community must make our voices heard. And this is what Ma was doing. This is also what Brother Nick Cannon was doing for the last several years. And I want to say nearly the better part of 10 years, I want to say he's been doing Wild and Out on MTV. And in 2019, he filmed an episode of Cannon's Class on the campus of Howard University. And the guest was Professor Griff, member of the famous rap group, Public Enemy. Now, former member of the famous rap group, Public Enemy. Professor Griff has very strong opinions about the nation of Israel, Jewish people, and Nick Cannon, as uh, they were having a conversation, joined in with some statements that proved to be extremely controversial. I won't quote any of them here, but just bringing up the, the context of the conversation. There were a couple of statements. Um, I mean, I will read Nick's apology here. It says that he responded to the firing via a post on Facebook saying, I must apologize to my Jewish brothers and sisters for putting them in such a painful position, which was never my intention. But I know this whole situation has hurt many people and together we will make it right. Um, Cannon also demanded full ownership of the Wild and Out brand he helped to create. Based on trust and empty promises, my ownership was swindled away from me, he wrote on Facebook. For Viacom to be so deceptive is no surprise. They have been mistreating and robbing our community for years, underpaying talent, on their biggest brands like Love and Hip Hop, all of BET programming, and of course, Wild and Out. Now, that was a very challenging situation for a lot of us to watch. Um, In recent years, Nick Cannon has become a lot more conscious. We know that he has gained, earned, completed a bachelor's degree in history from Howard University. He is in the course of studying towards a master's degree. And new information sometimes and new perspective sometimes causes individuals to step out in certain areas I won't say where they should not. That's not my place. Nick Cannon's a grown man. And in America, oddly enough, we're supposed to have freedom of speech. And I do not believe that Mr. Cannon or Professor Griff called for violence against anyone or stated that um, there was any negative or ill will or that 
you know, there, there should be a eradication or anything of that nature towards the Jewish nation. I don't believe any statements like that were made. I thought that some of, I thought that the, the rush to fire him was, was extreme. That, that's, that was my initial thought. That's still my thought. Um, and the reason that I'm talking about an event that happened in July, in December, is because Mr. Cannon raises a great point that is so duly connected to Ma Rainey's Black Bottom. Ma Rainey's Black Bottom is the title of the play, yes, but it is a title to one of her songs. It's a title to one of her songs, Black Bottom. Her horn player, Levy, played by Chadwick Boseman, is trying with all of his might to be heard. He's doing all that he can to be seen. He is performing notes that are not in accordance with Ma's timbre and pace. He is attempting in some ways to show up Ma Rainey so that not to not to diss Ma, but so that he can have his music heard. He wants his name in lights as well. He continually talks about Mr. Sturdivant, Mr. Sturdivant, Mr. Sturdivant, Mr. Sturdivant. He's going to let me play my songs. He's going to let me do this. And what we see, and I'm not giving anything away because the play has been out for uh, you know, about 35 years. <laughs> so if you just, um, if you haven't seen the, the, the film, you should have gotten to it already. It came out on, on Friday the 18th, and this is being released on the 21st of December. So shame on you for being late to the party. <laughs> In any case, he, Levy, extends one of the songs that he has written on paper notes and all to the owner of the studio and he is so excited that the owner is exchanging audience with him that he's entertaining the opportunity of levy being able to record some of his music but what we see later in the story is that levy was never going to record any of this music at this man's studio. The man liked Levy's music, but he didn't need Levy to play it. He just needed Levy to write it because his intent all along was to rob Levy of Levy's talent. That Levy's talent served a purpose, but Levy did not. Levy's talent as a writer, Levy's talent as a producer, as an arranger, served a purpose, but Levy himself was just a tool, as it were. And so we see correlations between Prince, Levy, and Nick Cannon. The big studios viewed Nick, Levy, and Prince as talent, not as equals to the record company, to the ownership class, right? It's kind of a caste system. It's kind of a caste system. They are cast in a mold as talent by the ownership branch. Prince was stifled in creativity for a period because he didn't own his masters. Which is which is which which is not a pun, but it is a double entendre. He didn't own his masters. And by that that saying in, in the music industry, meaning that 
you have the power over what you've produced. He did not have that. He had the ability to go out on the road and make money. And, you know, that's what that's what our performers have always done. Those that have um, made it to the recording um, level of success. Right. They sell a song. The studio owns the song, the radio people, they make money, the concert promoters, they make money, but the artist to make money has to perform and perform and perform and perform. But if they owned that hit single, if they owned that million selling album, and I mean owned the right to sell it, which nowadays we see through the streaming sort of apps. This podcast is being shared on multiple platforms, Spotify, Anchor, Apple, so on and so forth down the line. And so I own my intellectual property. However, when I share it to these multiple platforms, I have to be able to monetize it if it ever comes to something like that and that's great but the music industry has been set up for winners and losers for owners and talent for a caste system since its inception talent and ownership worker class and ownership, plantation, and slave, if you want to use a prince motif. So Nick claims that he, in that statement that he posted on Facebook, that he created and therefore owns or owned Wild and Out because it was his brainchild. I'm sure there will be some sort of court battle and there will ultimately be a settlement. I'm sure that he'll get some sort of compensation, but the company will fall back to the contract. And as we know in contracts, what the large print giveth, the small print taketh away. And I'm sure he has some sort of morality clause in the contract that says something about hiring practices and code um, code of conduct and representation and all of these different things and they're going to use his own words against him free speech or not to justify his firing right and so find it very interesting that all of these parallels came through here in 2020. That Prince is being recognized more and more for the genius that he is in business. Not just the fact that he played anything, any instrument that he could pick up, that he could play it from the piano to horn, drums, guitar, Prince could do it all. As an actor, we've seen that Chadwick Boseman could do it all. And in this final opportunity to observe greatness and to have him suffering from pancreatic cancer and the cancer absolutely ravaging his body, being able to see on film everything that this man had to give to this character and to this ensemble cast, to this play staged in 1927 Chicago by one of the great American playwrights, August Wilson, and produced by our dear brother, Denzel Washington, Chadwick Boseman, as Levy, 
reminds us that our talents must be preserved. Promoted, absolutely, but preserved. Not sold. Least, maybe, but not sold. Nick Cannon found out that though he wears a turban and refers to himself as sovereign, that in that space with Viacom CBS, that he was not sovereign in that space, that his ability to speak freely, quote unquote, really did not exist. And it was, there's, we, we don't have the ability to speak freely without accountability, without responsibility. I'm not saying that he or Viacom was wrong. Viacom protected their interests and Nick spoke his truth. I think in reality, they were both right. Truth of the matter is that Nick Cannon has been a producer since he was a teenager. And so what he, uh, I think, needs to do at this point is create his own app, his own down streaming service, downloading service, where he can produce the content he wants, own it, own the satellite, own the camera equipment, own the soundboard, and produce what he wants. And then if he chooses to say something that some folks don't like, then at that point, he is unfireable, right? And what we have to do, and what I want to do with I Represent the 2%, is showcase entrepreneurial opportunities and encourage everyone, everyone, everyone under the sound of my voice to not only pursue formal education, to not only pursue certifications and degrees, but to pursue skills, because you can't fire skills. I want our young people, I want our young people to work on their craft. I want them to improve on the gift that they were given. I want them to stir up the gift that they were given, right? If it's hand-eye coordination, pick up a guitar, pick up a pen, pick up a slide rule, pick up a level, right? Learn how to engineer, learn how to build a table, okay? Not only draw up the plans as the architect might, but also how to saw the wood, smooth it out, drill the holes and make a chair, right? Skills, skills, which is something that we used to have. All of us. If my, if my grandfather could see me paying someone else to cut my grass and paying somebody else to rotate my tires, I don't know how he'd respond. <laughs> I, really, I really don't. He did all of that stuff. For himself. He did all that stuff for people in the church. He painted and he was a master plumber at DWP for 43 years and the family had to drag him off the job. And because he had those skills, he was indispensable, right? What happens is when we have talent, but we don't have ownership is that we are always dispensable because there's always another talented brother. There's always another talented sister. And you guys, we're about to run out of time. I want to encourage you guys to watch Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, read up on Nick Cannon's case, and I will see you next week as we represent the 2%. God bless you.
Everyone, this is your host for I Represent the 2%, Amos Wellington. This week, December 21st, the second to last Monday in 2020, I bring to you the quick review of the new Netflix special that debuted December 18th, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, which is an adaptation of August Wilson's play for the film by producer Denzel Washington and director George C. Wolfe. I'm also going to discuss with you the firing of Nick Cannon from the show that he created, made famous, blew up, however you want to look at it, Wild and Out. This happened back in July of 2020 and directs, uh, links directly to uh, one of the star characters in the play. And so that's why I wanted to uh, connect these two items. In any case, I hope everyone is having a wonderful um, holiday season. I hope that your Thanksgiving was wonderful. I hope that your December has um, been fantastic thus far, despite all of the challenges, despite the legal challenges by the current president, despite the um, uh, hack from uh, foreign entities this weekend and to our intelligence systems last week. We look forward, regardless, to celebrating with our families this winter solstice, this Hanukkah season, this Kwanzaa season, this Christmas, this New Year's. Nothing is going to stop us from celebrating and appreciating everything that has happened this year um, that that we have to re- re- look back on and reflect on and say that it was all good, that it was all good. And we got to thank God. We got to thank our families for sticking by us. We got to thank our friends and neighbors for pulling together. And um, yeah, so let's get to it. We have had the opportunity to experience one of the great American playwrights in August Wilson. August Wilson um, raised in uh, Philadelphia and where I believe nine of his 10 plays are staged in, uh, in Philadelphia, in Pittsburgh. Um, this one play, this is the first one that really hit for him, which was Ma Rainey's Black Bottom was not staged in, Philly, in, um, in Pittsburgh. I keep saying Philadelphia, I apologize. In Pittsburgh, it was staged in Chicago. Georgia, Mississippi, in the South. But this one day that we're watching is a recording session where Ma Rainey and her band go to a studio up north and they're going to record a few tracks, a few songs to be played. Now, the record industry has not been the most favorable to the artist, right? Showcased by artists like Prince, um, who is now an ancestor. Prince let us know that uh, although he was recording his music in his own studio on his own property at his home, that because he signed that contract early on in his career, that there was no, there was not going to be any negotiation, and so Prince left his name behind and began and began to go by a symbol, and was simply referred to for a period of time as the artist, and would not respond to his name. <laughs> he was able to renegotiate his deal. And we're going to look at that much later because uh, I won't say much later, but not uh, in depth on another on another broadcast, because Prince Rogers Nelson was an absolute, absolute trailblazer. And we have to give him more time than uh, than we have this week. But I wanted to make the connection um, 
because Prince started in the in the 70s as a recording artist all the way through the early 2000s and um, 2010, 11, 12 um, before his passing, before his uh, untimely passing. In the play, Ma Rainey's Black Bottom, Ma Rainey is a blues singer and she is a powerful woman in her sphere of influence in the South, in her economic system, in her self-made, so to speak, ecosystem, Maharani is powerful. Maharani doesn't need integration. Maharani doesn't need, um, she doesn't need a college degree. Maharani doesn't need the approval of the NAACP. As an artist, as a businesswoman, she doesn't need any of that. All she needs is a microphone and an amplifier so that the people can hear what's coming from her lips. The blues. Now, we have several other characters along with her. Um, Toledo, her manager, and I forget the name of the manager, but uh, the character, he's, he's a white male. Um, the gentleman that owns the studio where the recording is taking place is also white. And so they have an idea of how the recording session is going to go. And Ma has an idea of how the recording session is going to go. And what the elder statesman in the band communicates to the manager, the studio owner, and to the hotshot Levy, who wants his arrangement to be heard, is that this is Ma's show. You live and breathe to help Ma bring her message to the people, not the other way around. <laughs> You're here for her. She's not here for you. Right? Ma's the star. It's Ma and everybody else. It's not Ma Rainey and the Melody Makers. <laughs> it's just Ma Rainey's performance, all right? But Levy, 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 played by our dear brother and now ancestor Chadwick Boseman in his final filmed role, we see this brother physically thin, gaunt as it were, but powerful. His performance commands and demands your attention from the opening scene until the end. His heart is on display. His passion for his craft as an actor. He disappears into Levy, who is all we see on screen. Our sister, our dear sister Viola Davis does a fantastic job converting herself into a blues singer from 1927. At the tail end of her career, at the tail end of her career, though it was, um, she fantastically transforms, physically transforms. She performs on stage. She performs in that sound studio. She gives us a memorable depiction and an understanding of a woman who is in complete control of her world in the South. It's a very different perspective than what we might normally see in a film that is depicting African-Americans in a performing role. Ma's a businesswoman. She tells her manager and the sound engineer or the owner of the studio multiple times, I ain't gotta be here. I can go back down south. I can get back to my tour. 
I'm not, you know, this <laughs> what they what they say consistently throughout the play is I ain't studying you. Ain't nobody studying you. Um, and one of the brilliant things that August Wilson communicates to black people first and to anyone else that chooses to listen is that first of all, our language our language, our adaptation of the English language, Ebonics, as it, as it came to be known by black psychologists in the 70s, Ebony and Phonics combined, our language, our use of the English language is beautiful. It is absolutely beautiful. And we as educators and we as a community must make our voices heard. And this is what Ma was doing. This is also what Brother Nick Cannon was doing for the last several years. And I want to say nearly the better part of 10 years, I want to say, he's been doing Wild and Out on MTV. And in 2019, he filmed an episode of Cannon's class on the campus of Howard University. And the guest was Professor Griff, member of the famous rap group, Public Enemy. Now, former member of the famous rap group, Public Enemy. Professor Griff has very strong opinions about the nation of Israel, Jewish people, and Nick Cannon, as uh, they were having a conversation, joined in with some statements that proved to be extremely controversial. I won't quote any of them here, but just bringing up the, the context of the conversation. There were a couple of statements. Um, I mean, I'll, I will read Nick's apology here. It says that he responded to the firing via a post on Facebook saying, I must apologize to my Jewish brothers and sisters for putting them in such a painful position, which was never my intention. But I know this whole situation has hurt many people and together we will make it right. Um, Cannon also demanded full ownership of the Wild and Out brand he helped to create. Based on trust and empty promises, my ownership was swindled away from me, he wrote on Facebook. For Viacom to be so deceptive is no surprise. They have been mistreating and robbing our community for years, underpaying talent, on their biggest brands like Love and Hip Hop, all of BET programming, and of course, Wild and Out. Now, that was a very challenging situation for a lot of us to watch. Um, in recent years, Nick Cannon has become a lot more conscious. We know that he has gained, earned, completed a bachelor's degree in history from Howard University. He is in the course of studying towards a master's degree. And new information sometimes and new perspective sometimes causes individuals to step out in certain areas I won't say where they should not. That's not my place. Nick Cannon's a grown man. And in America, oddly enough, we're supposed to have freedom of speech. And I do not believe that Mr. Cannon or Professor Griff called for violence against anyone or stated that um, there was any negative or ill will or that 
you know, there, there should be a eradication or anything of that nature towards the Jewish nation. I don't believe any statements like that were made. I thought that some of, I thought that the, the rush to fire him was, was extreme. That, that's, that was my initial thought. That's still my thought. Um, and the reason that I'm talking about an event that happened in July, in December, is because Mr. Cannon raises a great point that is so duly connected to Mar Rainey's Black Bottom. Mar Rainey's Black Bottom is the title of the play, yes, but it is a title to one of her songs. It's a title to one of her songs, Black Bottom. Her horn player, Levy, played by Chadwick Boseman, is trying with all of his might to be heard. He's doing all that he can to be seen. He is performing notes that are not in accordance with Ma's timbre and pace. He is attempting in some ways to show up Ma Rainey so that not to not to diss Ma, but so that he can have his music heard. He wants his name in lights as well. He continually talks about Mr. Sturdivant, Mr. Sturdivant, Mr. Sturdivant, Mr. Sturdivant. He's going to let me play my songs. He's going to let me do this. And what we see, and I'm not giving anything away because the play has been out for uh, you know, about 35 years. <laughs> so if you just, um, if you haven't seen the, the, the film, you should have gotten to it already. It came out on, on Friday, the 18th, and this is being released on the 21st of December. So shame on you for being late to the party. <laughs> In any case, he, Levy, extends one of the songs that he has written on paper notes and all to the owner of the studio and he is so excited that the owner is exchanging audience with him that he's entertaining the opportunity of Levy being able to record some of his music but what we see later in the story is that Levy was never going to record any of this music at this man's studio. The man liked Levy's music, but he didn't need Levy to play it. He just needed Levy to write it because his intent all along was to rob Levy of Levy's talent. That Levy's talent served a purpose, but Levy did not. Levy's talent as a writer, Levy's talent as a producer, as an arranger, served a purpose, but Levy himself was just a tool, as it were. And so we see correlations between Prince, Levy, and Nick Cannon. The big studios viewed Nick, Levy, and Prince as talent, not as equals to the record company, to the ownership class, right? It's kind of a caste system. It's kind of a caste system. They are cast in a mold as talent by the ownership branch. Prince was stifled in creativity for a period because he didn't own his masters. Which is which is which <laughs> which is not a pun, but it is a double entendre. He didn't own his masters. And by that that saying in, in the music industry, meaning that 
you have the power over what you've produced. He did not have that. He had the ability to go out on the road and make money. And, you know, that's what that's what our performers have always done. Those that have um, made it to the recording um, level of success. Right. They sell a song. The studio owns the song, the radio people, they make money, the concert promoters, they make money, but the artist to make money has to perform and perform and perform and perform. But if they owned that hit single, if they owned that million selling album, and I mean owned the right to sell it, which nowadays we see through the streaming sort of apps. This podcast is being shared on multiple platforms, Spotify, Anchor, Apple, so on and so forth down the line. And so I own my intellectual property. However, when I share it to these multiple platforms, I have to be able to monetize it if it ever comes to something like that and that's great but the music industry has been set up for winners and losers for owners and talent for a caste system since its inception talent and ownership worker class and ownership, plantation, and slave, if you want to use a prince motif. So Nick claims that he, in that statement that he posted on Facebook, that he created and therefore owns or owned Wild and Out because it was his brainchild. I'm sure there will be some sort of court battle and there will ultimately be a settlement. I'm sure that he'll get some sort of compensation, but the company will fall back to the contract. And as we know in contracts, what the large print giveth, the small print taketh away. And I'm sure he has some sort of morality clause in the contract that says something about hiring practices and code, um, code of conduct and representation and all of these different things. And they're going to use his own words against him, free speech or not, to justify his firing, right? And so find it very interesting that all of these parallels came through here in 2020. That Prince is being recognized more and more for the genius that he is in business. Not just the fact that he played anything, any instrument that he could pick up, that he could play it from the piano to horn, drums, guitar, Prince could do it all. As an actor, we've seen that Chadwick Boseman could do it all. And in this final opportunity to observe greatness and to have him suffering from pancreatic cancer and the cancer absolutely ravaging his body, being able to see on film everything that this man had to give to this character and to this ensemble cast, to this play staged in 1927 Chicago by one of the great American playwrights, August Wilson, and produced by our dear brother, Denzel Washington, Chadwick Boseman, as Levy, 
reminds us that our talents must be preserved. Promoted, absolutely, but preserved. Not sold. Least, maybe, but not sold. Nick Cannon found out that though he wears a turban and refers to himself as sovereign, that in that space with Viacom CBS, that he was not sovereign in that space, that his ability to speak freely, quote unquote, really did not exist. And it was, there's, we, we don't have the ability to speak freely without accountability, without responsibility. I'm not saying that he or Viacom was wrong. Viacom protected their interest and Nick spoke his truth. I think in reality, they were both right truth of the matter is that Nick Cannon has been a producer since he was a teenager. And so what he, uh, I think, needs to do at this point is create his own app, his own down streaming service, downloading service, where he can produce the content he wants, own it, own the satellite, own the camera equipment, own the soundboard, and produce what he wants. And then if he chooses to say something that some folks don't like, then at that point, he is unfireable. Right? And what we have to do, and what I want to do with I Represent the 2%, is showcase entrepreneurial opportunities and encourage everyone Everyone, everyone under the sound of my voice to not only pursue formal education, to not only pursue certifications and degrees, but to pursue skills because you can't fire skills. I want our young people, I want our young people to work on their craft. I want them to improve on the gift that they were given. I want them to stir up the gift that they were given, right? If it's hand-eye coordination, pick up a guitar, pick up a pen, pick up a slide rule, pick up a level, right? Learn how to engineer, learn how to build a table, okay? Not only draw up the plans, as the architect might, but also how to saw the wood, smooth it out, drill the holes, and make a chair, right? Skills. Skills, which is something that we used to have. All of us. If my my grandfather could see me paying someone else to cut my grass and paying somebody else to rotate my tires, I don't know how he'd respond. (laughs) I really really don't. He did all of that stuff for himself. He did all that stuff for people in the church. He painted and he was a master plumber at DWP for 43 years and the family had to drag him off the job. And because he had those skills, he was indispensable, right? What happens is when we have talent, but we don't have ownership, is that we are always dispensable because there's always another talented brother. There's always another talented sister. And you guys, we're about to run out of time. I want to encourage you guys to watch Mar Rainey's Black Bottom, read up on Nick Cannon's case, and I will see you next week as we represent the 2%. God bless you.